The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Glad to be here today on such a nice sunny day in the fall. Tried to get my yard mode guys yesterday, but my lawnmower tractor battery wasn't working. So got that fixed. Anyway, pleased to be here uh, for On the Money Show. I'm here as usual with Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, thanks for joining us yeah. today. Yeah, good to be here. And I have certified financial planner professional David Rudy and Paul Rudy, both certified financial planner professionals. Guys, welcome back to the show. Paul, welcome back to town. Thank you very much, and it's cool to be in the new studio. Yeah, I really like it. Um, you know, the first time I did it was a little distracting because there's people walking, but it has a. I think I just like the vibe better. I just I'm really enjoying this very much. You can call in with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Get that out of the way, guys. Well, Fred, uh, no shortage. Th- you know, uh, Paul, you produced the show. You, there was certainly no shortage of uh, topics to talk about. And we have one of them that's kind of a big glaring one, and that's why we're extra pleased to have dr fred gertz here today because uh there's there's some things that uh, first i'll get into the basic economic stuff it seems you know we look at last week we had all-time highs uh once again for all the major indices the s p 500 the nasdaq composite uh the higher uh, nasdaq 100 index the dow jones they all made new highs again last week on wednesday sure seems like the dominant trends up People may have not noticed, or maybe they have, that the S&P 500 has risen seven months in a row now. That doesn't happen all the time. Since 1980, it's happened seven times, and not one of those marked a significant top. So that doesn't mean anything. doesn't mean it couldn't. Uh, it's just interesting to look at the backdrop of historical. And when the Standard & Poor's 500 has risen more than 8% during the weakest six-month period, remember, guys, there's this sell and may and go away theory. Uh, didn't work out so well for investors uh, up over 8% during that time period. So if people followed that rule, it's really it's one of those rules of thumb we hear a lot when come May uh, that just doesn't have any real good empirical support behind it. Yeah, the fact is if it, if it worked, it wouldn't work very long. Right. But every time it's happened that we've been up uh, 8% during those weakest six months of the year, May through October, the market continued to rise and rose an average of 12% in the next six months, and it's been up 91% of the time. So, again, these are – remember, at the, I, I prefaced the show with past performance and no indication of future results, just kind of putting in the backdrop of historical. The current period, November through December, uh, November through January, is considered the best three-month period with the S&P 500 gaining on average – of four percent so in years like 2017 when there's not even a five percent correction during the worst three months of the year which are august through october no test after this uh, the broad u.s market measured by the s p 500 gained more than four percent through year end that's happened 82 percent of the time it's up 82 percent of the time higher so uh, and then there's one other study I noticed that said when the S&P 500, now again, the S&P 500 is a measure of basically the broad U.S. corporate economy. It's the 500 largest companies in the United States. So it's a pretty good proxy. Um, it's essentially, I think, a reasonable proxy to say how is U.S. corporations across the country doing. When it's gained at least 15% through October, which it has, it was higher within the next two months every time. It doesn't say how many times. It closed higher at year end in all cases but one, a 94 historical, 94% historical win rate. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, seems like, guys, uh, you know, we've tried to attack 2,600 on the S&P 500. It seems to me, through my 34 years of doing this, every time it gets to one of these psychological round numbers, it it backs off a bit, so that shouldn't surprise anybody. I still remember just on that note, in being in college, and I've been around, you know, not as long as you have. You probably think of other numbers, but I think it was like twelve thousand or four. I think it was fourteen thousand that we were talking about in my finance or investments class, right? About how it was this big psychological resistance point because it was this round thousand dollar number, 
Right. And you look back, and now it's at what twenty three thousand five hundred. Right. Very close. And, and you uh, know what's kind of funny is I graduated two years before David, and when I was going through school, it was the ten thousand mark that we were testing. Don't forget that yeah. was right after two thousand eight. It so. was, and it's it's been an interesting period really since uh, we, we had that great secular bull market between nineteen eighty two. Uh, and 2,000, where the, the Dow went from 1,000 to 11 or 12,000. And that, you know, of course, that include the reinvested dividends when you probably would have had a 17-fold increase um, if you owned the broad U.S. market, just as an example. But uh, then since 2000, it's amazing to talk to clients that are so happy <coughs> with their plans. And I, say, and I remind them that really over the last 17 years, the broad U.S. markets had a return of just over 5% a year, about half the historical rate. So, you know, it's, it's very important to have good planning and good withdrawal rules to make sure that uh, even in periods worth below average and well below average returns, <clears throat> that people can, as I call it, go to heaven having done everything <laughs> they wanted to on earth. And, Fred, corporate yeah. results really have been really good as far as earnings. They continue. Uh, so it seems like... I guess we're still probably in a plow horse economy. I think that'd be fair to say. Right, but, but it's, uh, but it's, starting, to, off. It, I mean, it's it, starting to look pretty good. And it's gone on for a long time, too. So the uh, recovery is one of the longest. So, again, there's uh, people used to make fun. Kevin Hassett is the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and um, he wrote a book about 15 years ago called The Dow 45,000, and everyone made fun of him, and eventually <coughs> he may be right <coughs> after, after all. <laughs> Well, Paul did a lot, quite a bit of research because he and I even you know, talk about this tax plan coming up. <clears throat> and it's almost classic that you, know, you have these two sides, one saying it's pro-growth, uh, that it, it, they argue that existing tax rates are so high uh, that the government collect more taxes if they lowered those tax rates because it would change incentives, lead to more economic activity, resulting in more tax revenues out of the rising income, et cetera. Um, then the other, uh, the another side of the aisle quickly quips and jumps in and saying this is just for the rich, uh, <clears throat> tax cuts for the rich. It's it almost like uh, you you expect both sides to say what they're going to say. Right, Fred, is that because the total amount of money saved by someone in the upper income brackets is often larger than the total amount of money saved someone in the lower brackets? Is it just a simple mathematical thing going uh, on uh, here that it has to, to be that extent, way? Uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> it goes back to the starting point if. Uh, this isn't for all taxes, but for income taxes, uh, half the people pay virtually nothing. So uh, a tax cut, if you're paying nothing, is still nothing. So, so most of the taxes are paid by the uh, the upper income group. So if you have a tax cut, it's going to uh, accrue to them. The, the way they've uh, gone around in the past is to give actually rebates where people don't actually have their taxes cut. They just get back money from the government. But that's more of a stimulus kind of operation, and this is not – Supposed to be that and the, the one the one problem though the uh, that is talked about sometimes but not not as much as should be is that uh, we're talking about a tax cut but we're also in a situation where we have a really large deficit and right. the deficit is expected to uh, continue to grow and I think that uh, most economists would would uh, argue that the Pro growth kind of things that they're suggesting here with uh, what would happen with the the tax cut are not enough to make up the revenue. So there's still that revenue problem that we well we're se- we're seven or eight years in a giant bull market, an economy that's risen for seven or eight years in a row, and we still have a six or seven hundred billion dollar deficit. Right. There is absolutely no will to cut right. government spending for either party. Right, that's clear to me. But one of the things, and I want to probe a little more, Fred, is uh, a lot of times these tax cuts. Uh, groups of people will say, well, they'll automatically flinch and say, well, this trickle-down theory doesn't work. Um, But really, there is no such theory as trickle-down economics. I think people have kind of hijacked this idea. uh, Even when you look at Joseph Schumpner's work of 13 or 1400 pages of the history of economic analysis, there's no mention of the word uh, trickle-down economics. So, but Yet it seems like this non-existent theory has become an object of denunciations from the pages of New York Times and the Washington Post to the political people. Um, well, it's, also, it's been uh, attacked by Paul Krugman yeah. who, of Princeton. Uh, you know, it's just attack after attack. Is this just a classic example of arguing against a caricature instead of confronting the argument actually made? In other words... Well, pro growth can't happen because yeah. trickle down doesn't work, but there is no trickle down theory. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. That uh, uh, it's, it also depends how you label it. Uh, uh, Democrats now 
uh, label it trickle down. Uh, John Kennedy said a rising tide uh, raises all boats, which is the same kind of thing. So, so the argument is, is, I think, that if the economy grows, everyone's going to be better off, which is true. But it's still very likely that the upper income groups are going to be even better off than lower groups. So it's sort of a little bit of, of uh, both things are true, that uh, it's not just trickle down that fails, but it's not going to solve but, the but, they, but they never proposed that it would right. trickle down. Right. Here's words from John F. Kennedy's speech uh, in 1963, urging cuts in tax rates. So this, I'm not arguing one way or another. Right. I'm just trying to gain clarity from you. It says, the purpose of cutting taxes is to achieve the more prosperous, expanding economy, total output, and economic growth. Uh, italicized words by John F. Kennedy addressed to Congress in 1963, urging. So he was really talking about what a lot of the people that are pro-growth, right. uh, you know, pro this, you know, the tax right. rates uh, stimulate the economy, grow the economy, more people mm-hmm. with higher incomes paying even more taxes, even though right. they have lower tax bracket. Inducing changes in behavior designed to increase aggregate output, not changing the allocation of existing inflows, in, in income flows in hopes of more prosperity at the top would trickle down. This, you know, this trickle down, I don't yeah. know how the trickle down theory ever popped up because nobody ever claimed it. Right. It was more the idea of can we expand the pie. Right. Um, and I even want to take you back and then, then I'll be quiet for a minute if you can believe it. Um, I, Paul was showing me work uh, in, in the 20s when they lowered income tax brackets. Actually, uh, the economy boomed. Tax receipts went way up. And then when they later increased taxes the number of people earning a hundred thousand went way down the number of people which would be incredible back then earning three hundred thousand in even good times they had lower incomes and there was a lot of sheltering in municipal bonds and other schemes to to be out of it kind of goes into this non-productive area Uh, what's your take on all that well i I think the uh idea of uh, uh of cutting taxes and stimulating growth is not uh, incorrect, but I think they're overemphasizing the, the impact. There are basically two two kinds of ways to stimulate the economy. One is the uh, stimulation during a, a recession or a depression where you try to put money in and you don't really care about so much where it goes. But this is not the case now. We're talking about uh, lowering rates to stimulate uh, economic activity by people investing more, working harder, things of that sort, which is not just a, a rece- anti-recession device. It's a long-term growth kind of thing. So it's a good idea, but uh, it's not a magic cure for everything. So oh, I, think, I understand. I, I think it's more modest than most of the proponents suggest, but it's still a positive sort of thing. We we simply cannot get our it's – it's clear because we are basically have a jet uh, debt-to-GDP that's – approaching World War II, mm-hmm. pre-World War II, when it made sense. We First of all, we had really high tax rates to yep. fund the war, uh, et cetera. Uh, but I, I'm, I just find it incredible, like I said earlier, well, here we are seven or eight years into this economic expansion, and we still have a $700 billion right. deficit, uh, and nobody's really talking about right. it. And but you hear the, politicians suddenly act like, oh, my gosh, if we cut taxes – I'm not. I'm not being a proponent one yeah, way, but to, right. to hear people that suddenly, both sides who have no interest in cutting the deficit, right. uh, cutting spending, right. now saying, "Well, it's mm-hmm. going to it's going to blow up the deficit." Yeah. Well, let me uh, again. I'm saying the same thing again in different ways, but the fact is, the economy has a life of its own, and and uh, all kinds of things happen there, and there's a lot of inertia, and these kind of marginal changes aren't going to have fantastic impact. So there's a a, a story that uh, I'm retelling from uh, Larry Summers. Larry Summers was the uh, uh, former Secretary of Treasury and President of Harvard. He said that, uh, and he was talking about tax cuts, and he said, uh, go back 100 years, and Argentina and the United States were almost the same, the richest countries in the world. Argentina has done almost everything wrong the last 100 years. The United States has done a lot of right things, and the difference in our growth rates is about uh, two and a half versus one and a half points. So, d- doing everything wrong in Argentina, they still grew at one and a half Got percent. It. Us uh, doing most things right uh, grew one percent more. So, changing the tax rate by 
a slight bit. It's not going to have a huge impact in terms of uh, expanding over a long period of time. It's, a, it's the right for, direction. Except that you bring up all the time, a 1% increase in real GDP. Right. Is over 100 a, years is uh, huge. It's, it's right. huge, and right. obviously that's where it's coming right. in. It's, it's not going to give us 5% growth, right. but it may give us another half right. percent. So, the, I, so I get it. I get it's sort of like uh, any kind of selling uh, technique you over promise sure uh, well uh, yes uh, you see that all the time i was looking at the 20s tax cuts um it's you know here's maybe i'm cherry picking and 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 blow me up if i am it says for those that bother to check the facts in 1921 when the tax rate on people making over a hundred thousand a year now remember i the night in that period of time that was incredible income right. was seven when the tax rate was 73 percent the federal government collected a little over 700 million in income taxes, of which 30% was pi- paid by those making over 100000 So high tax brackets, bring in $700 million, basically a third of it was paid by people, the rich people. Yep. In 1929, after a series of tax rate reductions had cut the tax rate to 24% on those making over 100000 the federal government collected more than a billion dollars in income taxes, of which 65% was collected from those making over 100000 right. What am I missing here? I mean, is that well, just a cherry again, pick uh, data? I, I think a lot of it is, uh, again, uh, lower tax rates do have some, some impact, positive ones, but a lot of these situations were uh, ones where people really weren't paying the nominal rate. So we had not marginal tax rate in the 40s and 50s, but virtually no one uh, paid that. There's a kind of puzzle that uh, no one fully understands, and that is that we've had rates going all the way from you know 10% up to 90% at the margin over uh, the last 100 years or so, and yet the uh, amount collected is always about 19 to 20% of G. GDP, yeah. so uh, it, there is kind of a stability, and a lot of that is because the high rates of the past really didn't apply to very many people, and, and what happened during the Reagan administration was that we lowered rates but uh, broadened the base somewhat. But isn't that classic? Uh, right. Nobody, in essence, to say that nobody really, not many people pay those high brackets means that right. there's an awful lot of attention and energy right. and resources focused on you know, trying to change our this characterize our income or, or yeah, do things. Yeah, and, and, and to two get things happen it. when you lower rates. It gives people less incentive to cheat and less incentive to look for tax avoidance devices, uh, uh, schemes, and things of that sort. So you get an increase in in uh, tax revenues because people don't spend the time trying to figure out ways to avoid the tax. You're listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money on WDWS. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, certified financial planner professionals, David Rudy and Paul Rudy, who work with me. Those two do, not Dr. Fred Gertz, work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call in your questions, 356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. I have to remember Uh, to Paul, I want to say one thing. uh, You have one satisfied listener. my wife and I are planning to take a trip, and uh, she's going business class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm getting well. You know, seven years of a bull market, uh, even with disappointing rates of return from the broad U.S. Advisors don't create returns; we just yeah. harness returns. Um, if you have a sensible plan, sensible investment strategy, it basically those plans assume that returns are going to be horrible, and even when just below average returns show up, it makes brings in so much more possibility to people's lives. It's just hard to get the Depression era folks or the people right. that grew up in the shadows of the Depression to look down at that much bigger portfolio yeah. number and, and think that it's okay to yeah, fly I, I understand. class. I, I'm still going steerage. So. Oh, yeah, well, good for you, Fred. Some things die, die hard. You know, I, I can't help everybody. I, I tell clients, I, I don't try to change people. I, I liken it to I can't make a dog a cat. So, uh, so we got that covered. Now, guys, uh, I want to go to... Let's kind of dive into this tax plan a little bit. So, uh, oh, do I? I got a call. See, I, I'm trying to get used to the studio. Ed's over there flagging me down. Uh, we have a call on line one. Welcome to Paul Rudy's on the money. How can we help you, Jack? The uh, bull market, bull market that has run as long as it has. Um, what your thoughts are with kind of your long term investing advice that you've given for years does that change when you uh, I, I don't imagine that you hedge at all or no. um, you know put in any stop stops with the market going down no. or with a market like this do you consider that and I will uh, hang up and listen okay well thanks for calling Jack uh, great question and of course it's a it's a question we're getting more frequently either from clients prospective clients uh, we don't use mechanisms like stop loss orders I ask people 
in a market that goes from Dow 40 to Dow 23,000, how do you lose money in something that does that? Or even if you look at the last 10 years or 15 or 30, any period of time, I don't know how people, if they're broadly diversified, ever have a loss other than, uh, I guess they get surprised. They don't anticipate that their portfolio values can go down and, and, and they panic. And, and, and surprise is the mother of panic. And then they panic, and then they sell. That that's a that's a problem, but that's a behavioral issue. That's not a mechanical issue. So, we basically have a financial plan for people uh, that the financial plan dictates the asset allocation at any given time, and that asset allocation can change. And if you get into a bull market, um, I, I think maybe whether I think about the market has nothing to do with it. The fact is, we've had positive returns for a long number of years. We've seen the stock market triple from its lows. Uh, even though the returns have been somewhat anemic, we've been in a pretty powerful bull market over the last, you know, measured from the bottom, it's been one of the most powerful bull markets. That naturally means that clients' plans become better funded than they were when they first started. And what that means is I call it an overfunded status. It means you now have more critical mass than you do have goals. And so we either need to expand the goal, we need to add a goal to it. And one of the other options that's always there, and we like to exercise it frequently, CPAs don't like it, uh, but the per person that has a person's lifestyle in their hands has to recognize that when we have the option to reduce fluctuation from your life and still achieve everything you want to do, you should at a minimum discuss that option, if not take that option. So what we're finding is for most of our clients, if not all, but I'll certainly say most of our clients, we're able to go to them in the past couple of years, year after year basically, and say, look, you can now achieve everything you said you wanted to achieve with a much lower or somewhat uh, allocation to the great companies of America and the world. It just means you can do everything you want to do with a lot less fluctuation in your life. That is a sensible strategy that has served us well. So I don't really, uh, I, we never operate off of how we feel about the market. I mean, I've, I've been clear since 2013, I've publicly said we're in a secular long-term bull market. They can be very powerful. I think we're still in the early innings. And then people get confused. They realize that, yes, but you can have very horrible conditions in a secular bear market. Uh, you know, you have these massive temporary interruptions of this of a potential uh, strong secular bull market. So that's how we handle it. And I think most people that have an advisor or if they look in the mirror and that's their advisor, they need to assess whether they need to maintain the current allocation they have to do everything they want. Because chances are somebody's paying attention. And that's the whole point. Somebody needs to be paying attention to it on a daily basis saying, are my clients or, or if it's me, am I positioned in the proper allocation? Am I taking on uncertainty that I don't need to take? Because it just doesn't make sense. Uh, to be in that position. So an answer to a short question. Dave, go ahead. I think the key, which you touched on, is just that your asset allocation decision should be plan-driven. It shouldn't be based on a forecast of where you think the market's going to go. And I think a lot of times people will say, well, I know you can't time the market, but... But I want you to time and the then market. They, then they ask you where you think the market's going to go, or they wonder if we should shift their allocation because the market's at all-time highs. And that's essentially market timing, because if you if you do that based on a forecast, you have to say, OK, we're making this decision because the market's at all time highs. We think it's going to go down. And then what are we going to do once it does go down? Are we going to know when to get back in? It just becomes you have to make that decision. It's either, like I said, you make your allocation decision based on your plan and long-term historical returns, or you're really just market timing. It's just basically a way to say that the the portfolio should be a slave to the plan. Right. There's also, uh, uh, I noticed, uh, I listened to an ad on the, on the radio from Ameritrade, and their argument was, we have someone online all the time who can tell you when to buy and sell. So people are still being encouraged to play that game, and the, the person on the line doesn't know any more than you or I know. Well, I mean, that's always a, a risk. Um, there's certainly um, plenty of people I'm not talking about TD Ameritrade, but there's plenty of people uh, peddling things to blow your lifestyle up for the rest of your life, right. whether it's people hawking gold or silver or just you, you fill in, or promising that you can have the returns of the stock market without the risk uh, or just basically a lot of garbage product out there that's very profitable to peddle. Uh, you know, people just have to always be be 
you know, you have to be your best defender of yourself. Yeah, typically it's not, uh, you know, two o'clock on a certain day that you have to act. You have time to think about it, time to uh, to make it happen. So it's not a matter of being uh, right on top of things 24 when, hours a day. Exactly. When people ask me my outlook for the broad U.S. stock market or the global, I say it will go higher in my view than people not only think it will, higher than they can imagine it will in their lifetimes. Uh, that's the best I have. Okay, guys, uh, from the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, good morning on the money. People sometimes misinterpret percentages. An increase from 3% to 5% state income tax isn't a 2% increase. It's a 67% increase. An increase of GDP growth from one5 to 3% is a 100% increase. Compound that yearly, and you'll see the difference between us and Argentina. I think that's the point Fred was making. Uh, it, you know, it, you can't just pay attention to the percentages, but small percentages mean magnified and compounded. And Bill uses the right word, compounded difference, right. small the, differences. The point, though, was that the, the 1% a year difference was comparing not a, a, a smooth-running uh, operation to a pretty good operation right. from the, the worst in the world to, to the best in the world only generated 1%. Now, 1% is huge, but uh, a, a minor tinkering is not going to give us another 1% uh, growth rate. Right. And and like you've brought up before, too, we're also not coming off of really high tax rates. Right. Some people might think they are, but from a historical right. perspective, right. kind of mid-range uh, taxation. In fact, I'm always amazed my clients, guys, you see it all the time. You know, if they're going to delay Social Security, for example, and they have a taxable portfolio and not just tax deferred or tax privileged assets, they can find themselves in a zero to 10 percent or or most of them probably won't be over a 15%. And these can be people with a million dollars. So that's just an interesting observation. So even the changes you said, we're not going from 90% to 28% or 70% to 28% like Reagan did. We're going from, we're, we're talking about shaving a few percentage to, 40 points. 40 to 35 or yeah. yeah. Um, well, going to the tax plan, of course, there's a couple of balls up in the air on this one, but trying to keep track, track of the changes themselves and what they mean to you is difficult. I think it's kind of difficult. So, Paul, I know you actually shared an article from CNBC on our company Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, so you can you can look look us up on those, that I think gives the best breakdown that I've seen on tax changes and what they really mean to people. So, Paul, what are some of the big changes people are hearing about, and what do they actually mean to people in Champaign-Urbana? Well, I think a big one that people are hearing a lot about is this doubling standard deduction. You know, That's kind of the rhetoric behind it. But that statement is actually a little bit misleading because though the standard deduction, they're, they're planning to basically double it, uh, they're going to lump in the personal exemption to it as well. So, yeah, they, so in essence, you're kind of losing that personal exemption. Right. So just to give you some perspective on the numbers, you know, they're looking to go from a standard deduction of about 6000 to about 12000 or a little more. I've actually read different numbers from Business Insider and CNBC, if that tells you how much uncertainty there is around this plan. So to around 12000 from 6000 So that is doubled. But in reality, you're losing that personal exemption. So, so if a married couple would have two? A married couple would have two as well. Yeah, that's right. So it's not as generous as it sounds because a single person is really going from around 10400 between their standard deduction and exemptions to about 12000 So it's not a double. It's really more like a 20% increase. Yeah, it's kind of a little sleight of hand there. <clears throat> when I first heard the doubling of the standard deduction, I thought, wow, they really are. That's pretty powerful. And then the words that you don't get to keep the standard. Well, deduction. and then think about the families that have multiple children. I that's mean, what I was going to get maybe into Maybe I'm next. thinking of that as a... Coming from a big Catholic so, family. Why don't you give it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, part of this standard deduction is the dependency exemptions. Dave read the notes ahead of time. Um, the dependency exemptions are going away, too. So, yeah, I mean, a family like ours, four kids, I mean, that's 16000 going away. Your, your 4000 boost in your standard deduction is, is not going to do it for you. So those are going to be the real losers or people who, who have large families that really need those exemptions. So and the winners are going to be anyone who uses the standard deduction that's <clears throat> going to see an increase. And uh, what about tax brackets? I know there's between the Senate plan and the con congressional plan, it's different. One leaves them kind of the same number. But let's look at the congressional plan. What is it trims those down a little bit? It does, yeah. Under the new uh, plan, there's currently seven tax brackets. There's a 10% bracket, 15, 28, 33, 35, and 39.6 is and the highest. And 25, you missed that one. but uh, Sorry, I was reading a That's list right. of seven numbers really fast, All early right, in I the morning. No, no big problem um, there. Well, under the new bill, they would save me from speaking so much because there would only be four brackets. There would be a 12%, a 25%, a 35%, and a 39.6%. 
So just to give you a little breakdown on how those brackets would kind of work for people, uh, income up to 12000 for a single filer, 24000 for joint filers would be at a 0% tax rate, which is a little higher than it is now. I think it's around, uh, yeah, I think it currently goes up to 9000 for single filers and 18000 for joint. Yeah, so uh, when you think about it, with the doubling of the standard deductions, and forget about the personal exemptions, uh, plus the first $24,000 of income is essentially tax-free. You're really talking about forty-five dollars to $50,000 of income that's the first that kind of becomes tax-free. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the combined effect of these is, is what really gets, is what really makes the impact, but it's really hard to isolate any one of these changes and know what it's going to impact everyone you know it's really people are going to be influenced by a multitude of these changes i mean a lot of people will get a double whammy there uh the next income bracket is the 25 percent bracket and that's going to go for income from forty-five thousand to two hundred thousand. um you know and just for perspective the 28 percent bracket now starts at ninety-one thousand nine hundred. the 33 percent tax bracket starts at 191 so like i mentioned the 25 percent tax bracket's now going to go all the way to 200 so those people are getting a pretty good tax break too i you know i i haven't really paid a lot of attention to it but it doesn't strike me fred that from a the, mm-hmm. from the just the regular people and forget the corporate side for a moment it's not that impressive i mean it does it seems like there's some shuffling and simplifying right. uh, yeah. but it doesn't seem like there's any big winners uh uh, it doesn't even appear that there's any big losers. It almost seems like a big neutral to me, maybe some simplification. Is yeah, that, is that common, fair to say? I, I think so. I mean, there will be some. There's one thing we haven't talked about yet, which is a special bracket for <clears throat> certain kinds of businesses, <clears throat> which could make a big difference. But uh, the, the, to illustrate this, there were, there's been controversy the last week or two about uh, does everyone benefit or most people benefit or whatever. And one of the problems was, uh, incorporating the, the child credit. There's also a child credit included there, which will make up for some of the loss of the exemption. So uh, if you include that, I think most people ha- have very modest benefits, but not not huge ones. The thing about the uh, simplifying the tax brackets really is no longer an issue. In the old days, when you had to you know, look at a chart and um, so on, it was a big deal. Now you your computer does it all for you, whether you have five or seven makes no difference. Right. Yeah, it's just interesting. How about that corporate side, Paul? Or are you done with the? Uh, no, I'm not oh, done yet. I uh, got a little, the little jumbled there. Um, so, so far, we've pretty much talked about people that are going into lower tax brackets. But, um, you know, once you get into the next tax bracket, the 35% tax bracket, that's now going to start at 2000 for single filers and 260 for married people, where the 35% tax bracket used to start at 416000 so people from the two hundred to four hundred and sixteen thousand range are going to see a bump in their highest marginal tax rate. But that being said, they've also received cuts along the way on that first two hundred thousand of income. So it's hard to say what the net impact is. But those people are really kind of in an unfortunate situation because they're going to get bumped. It's it's not a huge bump. It's going to be from the you know the thirty three percent tax bracket to the thirty five. But I don't think anyone likes to pay extra taxes if they don't have to. I don't think so either. So go ahead. And, um, you know, just kind of uh, just talking about the fact that the standard deduction is going to rise. One of the other things that's kind of going away are the itemized deductions. Uh, So there are some that are just going to go out the window. So deductions for medical expenses used to be able to deduct up to 10 percent of your adjusted gross income. That would be going away. Deductions for student loan interest would be going away. Deductions for alimony, casualty losses, uh, or theft from catastrophe, moving expenses, and tax prep fees are also gone. Um, but that aside, the one that people are probably hearing about the most is the mortgage interest deduction. Right. Uh, it's going to be limited to 500000 from $1 million. So if you really think about that, that's going to be a double whammy for a lot of people in that 33% tax bracket. Uh, I was just at a conference and I was talking with a financial planner in LA. So he has a lot of clients that are in, you know, that 200 or 400 range and they have houses with, you know, very high value. So they really depend on that, uh, that um, interest deduction. So, I mean, those people, he's going to be busy is the way he phrases it. And then combined with that, the the non-deductibility of state income taxes that's still part is that still yeah part of it yeah there's one uh where they don't allow any state and local the other where they uh, still allow property taxes but most people would again uh we're only talking about a very small number of people here because with the increased uh, standard deduction uh most people won't be itemizing at all so it's irrelevant for the people in 
you know, California or New York or Connecticut, it may be a big deal because they'll uh, lose some of their mortgage deductibility and also lose their uh, deductibility of state and local taxes, which are high in those jurisdictions. And this is sort of an example of, uh, I guess, what's called uh, death by a thousand cuts. You don't say the plan is bad. You just look at about three or four different things and say, well, this is bad for you, this is bad for you. And if you get enough of those, the bleeding starts, and it's hard to get the whole thing approved. Yeah, so the losers essentially, Paul, are what the so certain people. You know, wealthy certain- people who have large houses. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that those would be the losers because I don't think anyone's going to feel sorry for those people. You know, I, they have large houses and high incomes. They could probably afford. That's not the way I feel personally, but I just think politically it's easier for those people to be losers than anyone else. Yeah, well, we have Stan on the money. Stan, welcome, and thanks for calling. Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. I feel like you should be sitting here, Stan. I'd love to be sitting there, but nobody will invite me to come on as a guest. Oh, that's another question. That's because you're a Mr. Meanie. A Mr. Meanie. It's because I'm a liberal. You know that. I'm just kidding. And people don't want to talk politics. Well, now we have to be, now Stan, in all fairness, uh, I try to be real careful. I'm equal opportunity offender here. Um, I, I try to maybe balance, but I try not to make the show a political show. Uh, by design because we get so much of that already i get this one hour two times a month Uh, i'm just trying to minimize that if i can i i understand that and i appreciate it and i think you're doing exactly the right thing um but anyway uh this tax cut is a tax cut for the one percenters now stan did you you miss the first half of the show (laughs) no i'm just saying that i i hear that all the time but go ahead well, it, it's factually correct. If you look at the one year of Donald Trump's tax return that we have pages one and two, $22 million of his $27 million tax bill was due to the alternative minimum tax, which he wanted to do away with. That's one example. If you look at middle class America. Let's take them one at a time. Fred, where do you sit on the alternative minimum tax? Just from a fairness issue? Uh, is it a sensible tax to begin it, it, with? It was a good idea that uh, wasn't implemented correctly. The, the idea of the alternative minimum tax was that everyone should pay, uh, in quotes, their fair share right. if you have all these other avoidance uh, things available to you. So we approved it, and it went into effect, but it wasn't uh, really structured very well. Some of the major things, like state and local interest, was not included, so we ended up with a tax that had a purpose to catch people who weren't paying very much taxes, but it wasn't really structured in a very good way. And secondly, it wasn't indexed for inflation. So over the years, uh, more and more people started being uh, caught by it. And these were not the uh, the people who were getting away with uh, paying no taxes. So it's been a problem for 10, 15 years. Uh, they have in the past, uh, just sort of kicked the can down the road by saying, well, we'll not do it this year, but we'll do it we'll next year it. and then we'll next year. The, we'll and it. finally, about two years ago, they actually did uh, uh, modify it significantly. So getting a, getting rid of it now, I think, would have very little impact. Well, and uh, I'm not like an expert in AMT, but it isn't the purpose of AMT, like you said, some of those deductions go away, one of them being the property or the, yeah, the, the, mortgage, local the, the interest deduction, the state and local taxes. Well, yeah. those are things that are being eliminated in this new proposed bill, so it would right. kind of be a wash in that regard. And the marginal tax rate for the AMT was relatively high, but the base was, was different. So, again, a, a well-constituted AMT is not necessarily a bad thing, but the one we have now is not a, a, a good way to so do Stan it. So Stan might be factually correct. A guy like Donald Trump might be a real beneficiary well, of this, but maybe, but he, that, maybe that's just kind well, of— That's true, but also— his tax wouldn't go to zero. The AMT is when it's above your normal tax. So say you have to pay right. $40 million of AMT, maybe you would have paid $35 million of the ordinary tax before that. So it's not, I don't know. So if he suddenly didn't have AMT, doesn't mean he wouldn't have tax. Right. It just says you're right. going to pay at the normal, whatever the tax rates are. Go ahead, Stan. I'm just trying to get some clarity from Fred. Sometimes we go down these things, we hear these things, and you have to. St- we, I have to step back and say, wait a minute, is it even a, is that particular item a sensible item to begin yeah. with? But I mean, to, in, in Stan's defense, if uh, the the top one percent is paying, you know, forty percent of the taxes, you have a, a proportional tax cut. They're going to get a lot more than anyone else. So it's not surprising that people that pay the most in taxes we get the biggest tax cut if you decide to cut taxes. Would you agree with that, Stan? Well, uh, yes, and I would also agree with Willie uh, Sutton, I think it was, 
that uh, said he robbed banks because that's where the money was? Well, yes. I don't, I'm sure that's the analogy I think that supports you. <laughs> but go ahead. Well, I mean, we know the rich people where the money is, but, it, but, you know, the fact is if you took all of it away, you're probably still going to have some real problems. Yeah, well, the, the real well, – if there is we, a problem, uh, I, I think we're – instead of talking about taxes, we're talking about inequality. And right. inequality is not caused by the tax system, and it, to a certain extent it lessens it. But the, the way the world works now, there's been a huge uh, premium for people in certain situations, uh, people who have – uh, special kinds of talents, people who uh, operate various kinds of financial operations, right. things of that sort, and they've done extremely well, not because of low taxes, but because of the way the world has changed. There's sort of a, something now called the economics of superstars, where things are scalable. So a uh, uh, entertainer or, or athlete or someone like that in the old days uh, made nothing, a little, little more than average, but now they make uh, you know huge. You know, you're reading the Wall Street Journal, some star you've never heard of is selling a $15 million home in, in well, uh, Beverly Hills. I look at families over, you know, and you think, you know how those people raised four kids or five kids or three children? They raised them all the same, but they all didn't end up equal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm not sure. Go ahead, Stan. Right. See, we're filibustering okay, uh, you, Stan. I know. Uh, and I was waiting patiently because that's you, what I you did. When I... You did a spectacular job, by the way. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, I... The tax cuts have been the major propellant of transfer of wealth to the one percenters. And the proof of that is in the fact that in 1980, when Ronald Reagan took the office, the top tax rate for unearned income was 70%. The top tax rate for earned income was 50%. Ronald Reagan cut that to 28% and apply the alternative minimum tax because that was the maximum tax bracket when the alternative minimum tax was passed. Uh, that set up a situation which allowed the one percenters to accumulate wealth at the cost of middle-class Americans because middle-class Americans' real income has not gone up since 1980 with all these tax cuts. Nobody can say that tax cuts do anything other than transfer wealth to the top tax rate people, top top uh, earning earning people. All right, Stan. Now, We're another gonna, thing, Stan, I mean, we got we got limited time. Um, I appreciate your call, but I'm afraid I want a show that's interesting and not aggravating to people. And I'm not saying what you're saying is aggravating. Where the show's headed is, I can go watch CNN or or CNBC or MSNBC or Fox tonight, and I'll hear the same bantering. And and frankly. It, it, it's not that interesting to me. I get enough of it, and I'm not saying what you're saying is even wrong. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I got to move on. Before, before, oh. before you move on, yes, sir. Might I just add the one thing I wanted to uh, say before the filibuster started about uh, uh, income disparity? Uh, if you take away the uh, medical exemption for people. Uh, what you're taking away is the ability to uh, take as an exemption insurance premium costs. Right now, middle-class Americans with the high insurance premiums get to deduct that after a uh, threshold. But if you take that away, they do not get to deduct it, and they get to pay taxes on their medical insurance premiums. All right, Stan. Thanks for calling. Call anytime. Uh, there's a lot there I, I debate. When I hear this, median incomes haven't gone up. That's garbage. Uh, you have to look at total compensation. These things have been proven over and over again. A lot of these things are just fodder uh, uh, you know, that I hear over and over. We need simplification. Uh, but this victimization idea that it's the rich people or why poor people are down is just gets aggravating. I, you know, I just, I'm tired of the whole concept of it. Whether it's true or not, I'm just tired of debating it. Uh, this is a financial show. Uh, Paul, what about small business owners? I was going to say, let's get we, back I to the I think it is important impacts. to get to that. And, and Stan, I'm not, I'm not harping on you. I'm just saying I'm giving you my uh, true heartfelt feelings that I get bored of over that type of stuff. 
So the new <laughs> the new bill would actually lower the tax rate on pass through entities. So that's sole proprietorships, partnerships, S corps. I mean, these are these are small businesses. These are you small know, businesses that the company basically all the income, and if there is a net income, it, there's really no corporate tax return. It flows through to the person that owns the company or the shareholders that own the company. Right. Hence the name pass through entities. Um, but as of right now, all of that flows through to the business owner and is currently taxed at their individual tax rate. So that can be as high as. 39.6%. So that would be a pretty good reduction for people who have very, very successful businesses. But once again, it sounds a little more generous than it actually is because most small businesses do not make enough money to be in the top tax bracket. So they're not going to get as big of a tax cut as the maximum implies. And I think people are really anchoring to the maximum. You know, I, I think so. That and, and many, many companies don't qualify for it uh, anyway because... Uh, like your company probably wouldn't. So my, my company wouldn't. Professional companies, uh, law firms, financial services firms, they don't, they're not in this. It's really, I think, uh, more geared towards manufacturing yeah. companies. That, that yeah, they're this, small, this, but they yeah. still might have quite a few yeah. employees. Yeah, in my opinion, this is the one really weak point of the uh, tax reform because anytime you create uh, two different uh, tax rates for income, there's always an incentive to shift it from one place to another. So here the incentive is to shift it away from labor into into profits, and we don't really have a very good way of monitoring that. So uh, this is not uh, reducing complexity, it's increasing complexity. I think it yeah. does. I think common sense tells me as a small business owner, if you cut my taxes, I, personally, I'm going to reinvest more in my company. Right, and but you're, also, you're also going to minimize your, when you fill out your return, your labor income is going to go down and your profit is going to yeah. go up. Yeah. Right. And actually, lawmakers said they were going to adopt measures to keep people from doing that. But su not really surprisingly, they didn't say what those measures were going to be. Well, they've come up with some formulas. So if you do qualify, 70% right. of it still has to count as labor or something like that. So they're watered it down uh, quite a bit, it seems like to me. And how about retirement savings? Yeah, people made a big deal about these, that they were going to be limited to 2000 or something like this, and then they immediately went back on it. So I think that actually kind of provides perspective for any proposed tax plan. It's like everything that we talked about today is just a proposal. People might be getting up in arms about something that isn't going to happen because that's exactly what happened with 401k contributions being limited. Now, that being said, they do want to make a couple changes. Um, the first is they want to repeal a rule that allows you to do what is called recharacterization of Roth conversions. So you convert money into a Roth account, and it unintentionally bumps you into a higher tax bracket, and you say, ah, I want to redo. I, I want to undo that. Or the market goes down, and you say, hey, it'd be better to recharacterize it, and I could do it over again, essentially. Right. So they, I mean, once again, that's a pretty subtle nuance, but they want to kind of do away with that. But on the positive side, they want to ease the rules for hardship withdrawals. So under the current rule, once you've pulled money out for hardship, you can't contribute to the 401k for six months. And um, yeah, I mean, it's they basically want to do away with that so that as soon as you get back on the job and as soon as you, you know, start as soon as you've recovered from whatever your hardship withdrawal need was, you can go back and immediately start contributing again. And then what about from an estate standpoint? Is it going away? Is I forget. Uh, it seems scheduled like to go away. Yeah, it seems like they're intending to kind of phase it out, but they even intend to do it pretty quickly, um, or at least make changes that are going to impact people quickly because they want to immediately double the estate tax exemption, but they don't want to get rid of the step up in basis. So if if you pass away and you pass something on to your heirs and you bought it for ten bucks and it's now worth fifty bucks their cost basis, it's as if they bought it for 50 bucks. So they don't have that $40 of capital gains built into their world. I mean, then the, the taxes you know, can kind of run people over. So they want to keep that step up in basis too. So don't want to scare anyone. Okay, so you know, there's a lot in there. It's yet to be seen. It's probably even premature. I mean, we can see what the Congress wants to do with their plan. You can see what the Senate wants to do. They are different. Yeah, no one should, as Paul said, no one should uh, make any dra dramatic changes based upon what's happened here because not much has happened so far in this Congress. So I agree. That I, I, we don't even know if anything's going to happen this year. And like all these issues, these are things to discuss with your certified public accountant, You know, not something you hear on a radio show. We're just trying to provide kind of a background of what may be coming at you, what you may want to, you know, may probe some questions or prompt some questions for your CPA. Right, just how you may be impacted because – like I said, we don't really know if these are going to take place, but we just kind of want to put them on people's radar because I think this is a big hot-button issue that people are worried about. But 
the changes are so complicated, it's really hard to drill down to what does this mean to me? And sorry, Dave, I interrupted you. No, I was going to say, and I've gotten questions from clients and a couple other people that ask, you know, how do you think this new tax proposal, if it goes through, will impact the, the stock market? And my answer is really, I don't know. It will probably have an impact. But I think people sometimes overblow it, like Dr. Gertz talked about with the economy. You know, a marginal change to our tax structure is not going to have this enormous but impact on the economy. The stock market, you know, there's a lot of things that affect stock prices. Prime, you know, the number one being just how profitable and like the earnings of companies. It would change the earnings. Uh, Jeremy Siegel from Wharton School of Business. He's the author of stock of uh, stocks for the long run. Pretty well known. Pretty pretty respected. Well respected. So basically, you do the math. It, it increases the after tax earnings of corporations by about ten percent. Well, at the same multiple, if you do that, theoretically, all things being equal you would increase the valuation of the stock market by 10%. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen because there are other things that can offset that at the same time. But but to me, fundamentally, if someone's thinking from an investment standpoint, what does this tax thing do? I think everything's pretty much a, a wash except for that one, the corporate potential tax rate. It instantaneously makes corporate earnings worth more money the day it gets passed. Now, that may be, Fred, you you're always <laughs> say that that always gets anticipated and yeah. it might be into prices already. So maybe part of this strong move in the last year is about the anticipation. Yeah, so if it doesn't lower. happen, the market I mean, on, that, on that basis could go down. So obviously Dave, we don't know. Dave, we were going to talk about open enrollment, but we have three or four minutes left. Uh, we might hit the highlights. Uh, you, you know, it's for health care we're talking about. It's a shortened period now. Uh, any major buttons in for a couple minutes that you want to hit on that one or does that want to just add that to next year i'll just say one I mean, thing real quickly is um open enrollment is going on right now it started november 1st and ends december 15th and all that means is that you know for employees that are participating in an employer health plan you can essentially reevaluate your choice and so it always makes sense at least periodically even if it's not every year to look at the health plan that you're on right now see what the options are available to you and make sure that you're doing whatever's best for your actual healthcare needs. Yeah. And so they just need to check, make sure that the plan they're in is the optimal plan for them, and see if they can save some money or come up with yeah. a better plan. Yeah, this is also the the uh, time for our annual warning about buying mutual funds because you may be buying into uh, some capital gains you don't expect, it's, and they could be strong this year. What yeah. Fred's talking about is towards the end of the year. Uh, Mutual funds pay out the majority of their long-term capital gains to the extent there are any. Well, considering we've had year after year, you might anticipate a little higher uh, capital gains rates that are going to be distributed to you in mutual funds. Well, if you buy it the day before the distribution, you pick up the tax, but you really aren't any economically any better off. Uh, so you have to really watch that out. So this is just a good time to, before you do anything, talk to your advisor to make sure that that's a sensible strategy or talk to somebody who's independent and, uh, and, and that'll help. Uh, let's see what time is it, guys. We're, um, there's the clock. We have a couple minutes left. Uh, well, Fred, I guess we're going to see wh – what do you think the chances are, just your gut feel, that something gets done tax reform this year? Uh, I think something probably will, but it's probably going to be a lot uh, less than people expect. There's a, uh, a saying in tax policy, I guess, applies to a lot of things in life, that uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So if we're looking for a perfect thing, uh, nothing's going to happen if we're willing to accept uh, – a, uh, a good but uh, flawed kind of uh, tax reform, we probably will get some things so, uh, bad with good. Yeah, and my, again, my opinion is on the personal stuff, simplification probably is okay, but I don't see any real major mm -hmm. uh, things that are all that interesting. And uh, other than that, uh, uh, you know, the corporate. So, well, if you're looking for something to, to do fun this weekend, head on over to Festival of Trees, put on by the Junior League of Champaign-Urbana. We're proudly sponsoring our on-the-money theme tree with covered with $500 of cash. Anyway, you can look that up. I think we're running out of time. Uh, Junior League, Festival of Trees, look for our tree. Thanks, Ed Bond. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month right. for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.